Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapper on the Bus Sport Review. Today we're going to conclude our three-part series into the Women's World Cup. Now, in many ways this tournament was a triumph in terms of the quality of the football that was played, some of the new teams, you know, in terms of Scotland's performances, Argentina's performances, even, you know, to an extent Chile's performances. You know, there were some fantastic performances by Cameroon, which I discussed yesterday. And, you know, in terms of some of the, the stars that came out, the younger players, you know, the support that was shown, you know, all throughout the tournament, you know, there was many reasons, you know, it was the biggest tournament yet. And obviously with FIFA's commitment to go to, you know, a 32-team tournament, you know, and the increasing you know, viewership around the world, you know, that's fantastic. But it does have to be, it wasn't a... It wasn't an unqualified triumph. It does have to be caveated in that there was some, you know, fairly atrocious attendances at some of the games. Now, uh, I think you can view it in in sort of two ways. Yes, I, I think a huge amount of criticism can go to um, FIFA and the organising committee of the actual tournament itself in terms of the there was the issues with the. Um, Ticketing where you'd buy tickets all expecting to sit on the row, you'd then be they would then sent the tickets, and you know your three year old would be in one block, you'd be in another, your husband would be on the other side of the ground. That was embarrassing. I think there were some question marks over being able to buy the tickets on the door, and you know there were some questions about you know about marketing, and I think all of those are valid criticisms in the sense that there were some places where you were you know. If you went to the tournament, you'd know exactly that it was a huge deal. In other places, it's as if you know you could be, you would have visited the city, you'd have tickets to the game, and you wouldn't if you were a you know local on the street who'd just come back from a two week holiday in China. You wouldn't know that there was a, a women's World Cup happening you know in your city. However. I get the feeling with even with, had the organising committee in FIFA not made these mistakes and even you know made more of an effort to market it, whether that would have fundamentally altered the attendance, whether it would have gone up from, let's say, one of England's group games, it felt like it was sort of 13,000 in the crowd, in a sort of 30,000 plus stadium, whether you know a little bit of extra marketing would have filled it up. Uh, there are question marks. I mean, women's football is developing rapidly, but it is from a relatively low base. In other words, you know, when I did the first part of this series talking about, you know, women's football as a principality, unconsciously, I when talking about John Herbman, who is who was the Canadian, you know, women's team manager, who's now the the manager of the men's team, and that, you know, if he stays in the job in the next few years, he would be able to lead Canada out in the World Cup at home, and I described it as the pinnacle and that's not in any way shape or form to denigrate the women's tournament in terms of saying that it's kind of a low level tournament and actually if you can get to the men's tournament that's where everything happens i fervently hope that in the future by the time i'm an old man you know or even a middle-aged man that both tournaments have are exactly the same size no no differences but at the moment there is clearly in terms of attendance, in terms of interest, it's not 
comparable. And that's, you know, there, there's so many different factors behind it, but you're still in a situation where at its peak, you know, in terms of, let's say, you talk about the 1999 Women's World Cup final, which was held in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. That got a sellout crowd, which was exactly the same sellout crowd for the 1994 men's you know, final. Now, the difference is, I suppose you'd say that the 99 final, yeah, America were in the final against China. But at the absolute grassroots level, in terms of the domestic leagues, the attendances are still poor. You know, in England, it's barely over, yeah, averaging over a thousand. You know, even in you know parts of the N double NWSL, some you know Sky Blue in New Jersey do not get particularly great attendances. You know, things are improving, but they're still, you know, it's, it still hasn't quite got to that level where World Cup games are sold out. You know, group stage games, even with teams such as England. You know, who would be a you know a draw, you know for any kind of neutral fan? It still hasn't got to that level where people are you know willing to you know go to games. You know people will watch it on TV, but it's still you know whether that it doesn't translate to the extent where you get five, ten, fifteen thousand people going to domestic women's game on a regular basis. It's only really in a sort of handful of places. So you're talking the Portland Thorns, to an extent you're talking about the Orlando Pride. There there's still a, a degree level to go before it gets to the stage where where the women's tournament and the men's tournament are on an equal footing and it is absolutely incumbent on FIFA to close that gap. Now part of the difficulty is is that the way how the game has been the World Cup has been really formulated is that everything's been lumped together. So in other words, if you were sponsoring the World Cup for the men's tournament, you were effectively sponsoring the women's tournament. That was just added into the the, the overall fee that you've that the company's paid. So as a result, FIFA at the moment don't know how much money effectively the Women's World Cup makes. In other words, they know in terms of the tickets, in terms of you know the sort of TV deal. It's it's difficult, and I think at some point what they need to do is to really separate the two tournaments in terms of the contracts, so that you're actually aware of how much you know money this tournament is making, which can then allow you to then. Uh, really try and expand it in terms of the amount of money you put in and the expectations you put on whichever host nation hold it. In other words, uh, there's a potentiality that the next Women's World Cup could put, be held in Australia. Now, the complications of that is is that for Europe, there's a chance that some of these games will be on at you know, silly o'clock in the morning, silly o'clock in the evening, and what that will do in terms of television ratings, in terms of how many fans are willing to go all the way halfway across the world to watch it. What I fervently wish is that the gap closes as quickly as humanly possible and that it's not done purely on the idea of economies. In other words, until you make X number of money from the tournament, then we will you know we will then match that it really has to be supercharged in that regards now 
there's a certain ambivalence I feel towards the you know US women's national team. I think they deserve to win the tournament. I think at times they play some absolutely fabulous stuff and yeah, they would deserve champions, but I absolutely detested the way that they went about it. Uh, in many ways I just you know, I came to call them shithead squad. Because some of the stuff they did, I felt, was was outrageous. Now, there's a duality when dealing with the US women's national team. Is that they are the vanguard for the battle against marginalisation, gender discrimination, you know, poor treatment by FIFA. They are the leaders in, in pushing back in terms of their own federation, you know, with the things like the origins of the victory tour, with the with the lawsuit, you know, they filed and they're, they're battling in the courts regarding the gender discrimination pay because of the and that's really inspirational and these battles need to be had. And hopefully that example of the most, you know, the most successful women's team at international level having those battles, which should lead other you know nations to follow in those footsteps. But on the flip side, so and that's the inspirational side, and in terms of people like you know Megan Rapinoe, Abby Wombach, there there's so many, you know, Brianna Scurry. You know, Mia Hamm, Christy Rambone, there are so many inspirational figures and and some fantastic goals, fantastic games. But it is really impossible to tell the story of women's football really without, you know, the US being the sort of centre point of that. However, the flip side of that is that they have an overwhelming advantage in terms of the player pool, the infrastructure, domestic league, you know, the impact of Title Eleven, facilities, the history and culture of success, coverage and support in comparison with their rivals. Title Eleven was not designed with the intention of, of the US women's national team winning World Cups and being the dominant international team within the sport that wasn't the plan it was a legal ruling which then effectively forced college you know colleges that were getting federal funding had to provide you know, equivalent sports facilities for women now the easiest and cheapest way was soccer in other words you already had the fields in terms of the gridiron for American football all you'd need to do is put a couple of goals on there handful of balls couple of coaches you know and some kit and you know you then had a you know women's soccer program as a result you know all across the country there was a way for people to get scholarships a way for people to play you know women to play football which then meant there was already an infrastructure in place so that when you know you got reached sort of 1991 and the first women's world cup america had a huge advantage in terms of coaching in terms of player pool 
and they have built on that. You know, the U.S. were in terms of they've had, you know, obviously the NWSL is the fourth effectively professional league, and this is the one now has been running the, the longest now. In parts of Scandinavia, they did have professional leagues, but if you were going to talk about the quality in terms of playing, in terms of skill level, the American League is now is still preeminent. Now it is changing slowly but surely, and I think the it's moving a lot closer towards Europe. And I think in about five to ten years, the it will be Europe that will be leading the way and that America will be falling behind. And there's an interesting question of how they will then deal with that. Because there is an element of the NWSL that is um, sort of protective. In other words, if you want to get into the US women's national team, you need to be playing in the United States. If you don't, then you are likely to be marginalised. In other words... Because the way how it works is the U.S. Soccer Federation effectively pay your... you If you're in the national team, you get paid your national team wage and they will then also cover your league wage. And it's... I suppose the idea is just that you want everyone playing in the same league, which makes it easier in terms of scouting, in terms of ranking players against each other. But also it is a way of trying to boost the success of the league and keep the league strong because obviously the previous three professional women's leagues have all you know collapsed i don't think that's now going to be the case for the nwsl but the problems that they've had with the boston team with sky blue it is not something that, you, that they can guarantee and if you did have a four or five of the more marketable women's players leaving for europe that would affect the, the league it would damage the league certainly And as a result of this duality, what that means is is that the women's national team are very popular back home in terms of you know, how the media and how the fans, they are absolute heroes and they are you know, national figures. You know, when they won this tournament, they went through, you know, you know, Heroes Canyon in New York, they had a ticker tape parade. You know, they were on all of the, you know, talk shows. Women's football has definitely exploded and is now far more in the popular consciousness than it was maybe four, five, ten, fifteen years ago. But as a result, there is a, at, I think, federation level, at management level, and player level, and fan level, media level, there is this ultimate desire to win at all costs. There's an expectation that the women's team has to win. They are supposed to win. So in other words, the sort of gap where from the late uh, late 90s, early 2000s to when they actually won the tournament under Joe Ellis in Canada, beating Japan, was a huge amount of, of pressure in terms of losing to... Japan on penalties and this German team that for about six, seven, eight years really led the way. And slowly but surely what that's led to is a really, how I would describe it, a toxic culture. 
it's reminiscent of what happened really with Australia under Darren Lehman, which then led to the sandpaper gate affair and crisis, is that the Federation is so... For the US women's national team, winning, you know, sells out tickets, it's... It benefits the league. It benefits grassroots. It brings money in. I talked earlier about the the Victory Tour. Now, the origins of the Victory Tour is a fabulous story. So, basically, after 1999, the US women's team had beaten China on penalties in front of 90,000 people at the Rose Bowl. And it was a fantastic achievement, and it was really a turning point in women's football. You know, to an extent globally, but especially in the United States. And so what happened was, is that the, the Federation really wasn't prepared for this, or the explosion of interest. And what happened was the players, through you know, Nike and a couple of sponsors, effectively decided that they were going to have a you know, victory tour. They were going to use this, you know, Interest to go play five or six games across the country to packed out houses and the US you know, Federation completely and utterly you know, sort of freaked about it because really the women had gone rogue on them, which was you know, well within their rights to do so. It, you know, why shouldn't they you know, gener- you know, boost the interest in the sport, you know, get more people through the door, more people interested in it? And just because they hadn't done, which was their own inaction. So eventually there was a, you know, there was some threats of legal action. There was a lot of arguments back and forth. And eventually what happened was, is that the Federation took control of the victory tour. But it was a victory for the players more than anything else. And as a result, after each World Cup, there is a tour. Now the victory tour sells a lot more in terms of interest and tickets if they win. So as a result, there's a huge amount of pressure from federation level onwards for them to be successful, which has then really put that pressure squarely on the manager. And I'll, you know, I'll discuss this with regards to Jill Ellis you know, a little bit further on in the podcast. And there's a pressure from, I think, the media and from the fans because they are so used to the US winning and really, in some ways, winning is seen as a way of increasing interest and mainstream in other words taking it not just from you know soccer moms and people that play it to kind of expand it to across the whole country to people who are not you know naturally soccer fans in other words the, a lot of the culture of you know soccer in the united states has really developed out of cities so in other words it's people under the age of 40s you know you you know, described as millennials, Generation X, who basically live in cities like, you know, have beers, drink craft beer, love the Premier League, go to see their local team. It's that kind of interest. And so it's where soccer and hasn't really made an impact is, you know, you know in a sense, rural or places which don't have, you know, an MLS team or don't have an NWSL team. And really, what the Olympics and the World Cup are the on are the major 
moments at which women's football goes into the mainstream. So it's on, you know, domestic television. It's, you know, people can get into it. And getting knocked out of the tournament early would just be a financial, economic disaster. And it would be a disaster in terms of trying to get the sport to become more mainstream. And having such a historical record of winning, what that's meant is is that it's created is that a women's yeah, a US national team loss is an aberration. It's something that immediately has, you know, puts everyone under the microscope in terms of the manager, in terms of the players, because there is such competition for places domestically, you know, it's if you make a mistake, you know, having a spot in the US national team would be like gold dust because they're you know some of the players are were so famous and so good is that if you were a winger you know Tobin Heath and Kirsten Prowse and Megan Rapinoe were the wingers and to in other words th- these are people who you'd easily put in the top 15 top 20 top 10 best players on the planet going forward as a result getting into the team even getting onto the bench or the squad yeah, the training squad is a tremendous achievement. So what's happened is it's created a, a narrative. In other words, there has to be a reason behind it. I we lost because, and especially under Jill Ellis, what that meant is is that if you lose, let's say, in the She Believes Cup, which is hosted by America, there's four different teams, and it's usually effectively you know, uh, Brazil and it, you know, Brazil, uh, Japan. And, you know, the cream of, you know, European football. So, in other words, France, Germany, England, potentially Sweden, that kind of level. It's a high-level tournament. So, in other words, if the US team were to loss, it's because, oh, well, we were actually trying this. We were using it as, effectively, a, you know, test kitchen. It wasn't that, actually, sorry, we just weren't good enough on the day. That wouldn't fly. Because you know they are so used to having a sort of nine hundred, you know, winning effectively, basically nine times out of ten, you know. And with this, and with things such as the you know lawsuit against the federation, there's huge pressure on the players. The idea being is is that winning the tour, you know, winning the World Cup strengthens your position legally because it comes down to the argument of why are we paid less than the men because despite you know the our team being far more successful and and what's this meant really for Jill Ellis who's now stepped down after having won you know two world cups you know fantastic achievement even it once you factor in that yes they did have advantages in terms of being the, the best paid the most professional in comparison really to all you know their main rivals so if you take england for example we've had a professional you know we've moved to a professional top division really a couple of years ago you know, we've had to go through sort of two or three different reorganizations of the league we are still having teams developing which is you know effectively behind where the NWSL is. You know, we don't have, you know, colleges that are producing players at the same rate as you know the United States. We are catching up and certainly France is catching up in terms of you look at Lyon, who I'd say are the world's best women's domestic team, but in terms of the strength of the league sort of top to bottom, you would still say the NWSL is 
top, although the European leagues are catching up. And I think it's important to note that, for example, in the this year's iteration of the She Believes Cup, you know, uh, England won the tournament, and the US were defensively quite weak. And this is a, coming from a coach that's you know already won the World Cup. There was constant question marks about her long term future. In other words, she didn't have a huge amount of political capital. In other words, every time she lost, loses a game, Jill Ellis had less power. The, the pressure that was coming from the players in terms of the veterans and the pressure coming from the federation. Her job was secure-ish. She was never given the sense of, here is, you know, this is your team, you set the tone, you pick the players and we will back you. It is, we will back you as long as you, you know, maintain a 900% winning record. In other words, we're 9 out of 10 games, you have to actually win the, the tournaments. So she was constantly battling between win now and win tomorrow. Which, for the US, although I keep t saying that they have a huge advantage, the, what that means is, in terms of international, it's actually very difficult. Because what that means is, is that you have a large player pool. You have, you know, some players who are just massively experienced. So, you know, you're talking Carly Lloyd, you're talking Alex Morgan, Kirsten Press, Tobin Heath, Becky Sauerbrand, Megan Rapinoe, who are, you know, very experienced, outspoken, and rightfully so because of their, you know, success as players you know, and being some of the world's best players. What that led to was is that. Whenever she tried, Joellis tried to make changes or bring in younger players, it was very difficult. The idea was is that you had to like learn, you know, you had to learn your place. You had to basically, you know, spend a few years on the bench, you know, getting to the point where you were considered, you know, good enough to be a backup. And then eventually, once a place, you know, became available on the eleven, because someone, you know retired or someone got injured that was the only way that you would then be allowed and then you would become a veteran and then you would almost have that kind of sinecure and she and probably what her most fantastic achievement was is to change that and to say actually we're going to go slightly more meritocratic we're going to bring in young players and and that was in some ways because maybe on the more defensive side of things, the you know they had a few retirements, and so they'd lost an element of experience. And part of the reason why the US were you know so attacking in the sort of run up to the tournament, it is simply that actually they had better attacking players, and that they had a level of dominance which would really effectively allow them to go all out attacking on the idea that if they conceded one or two goals, then actually they would have the firepower to get three or four. And it's interesting, you know, in terms of, you know, sort of Crystal Dunn playing at sort of, you know, fullback, she's naturally an attacking player, but they kind of, you know, converted her to being a fullback. They've convert you know, they've converted other midfielders into, you know, fullbacks. And even in defensive midfield there was still, you know, some question marks going into the tournament. And really that came to a head in the in about sort of back end of 2017 2018 is actually some of the senior players went to the federation and tried to basically get Jill Ellis you know to be fired now the previous 
manager had been fired due to a you know, poor results and also a you know sort of player insurrection. So it was a difficult position that she was in, and in some ways, I always describe her sort of management strategy in some way as a sailboat in choppy seas it's always sort of tacking one way and the other in other words she's won two world cups with the best squad and the deepest squad and the most you know in terms of infrastructure in terms of you know professionalism yet yeah. and you could even say that the best young players but she was still reliant on veterans it was never as if she ever had the power to sit there and say well, I'm going to drop all of these players who have you know, created this kind of negative atmosphere. I'm going to go with young players and we will create the next great US women's national team. In other words, it's been kind of an awkward mix between the experienced veterans who have the, I suppose, the winning mentality and the name that will you know, puts the oppo under pressure, who can perform at the highest level because that's how they've spent their whole careers at that kind of level. So in other words, at 2015, you know, they were, you know, reliant on sort of Hope Solo keeping clean sheets to cover the defence that wasn't particularly fantastic. You had Carly Lloyd at the other end. In this year's tournament, you had, you know, Becky Sauerbrunn, you had Megan Rapinoe, Tobin Heath, and you know, Alex Morgan to a lesser extent. So, in other words, those players were the ones who underpinned it. Yes, the young players came in in terms of Rose Lavelle, in terms of you know, Lindsay Horan. You know, definitely, if you look at it, Carly Lloyd ended up just being sort of a semi-barely-used impact sub. You know, they have moved on, but really, I suppose an interesting question mark would be, point would be, could they have won the tournament without any of those senior players? Could the next generation, would they have had the winning mentality? Now, winning mentalities can mean lots of different things. I'm always partial to the, the concept of the New Zealand rugby team and the New Zealand cricket team. The New Zealand rugby team are famous for their statement, no dickheads. So in other words, yes, they are dominant, yes, they are a fantastic team, but generally the idea is you respect the oppo, you respect your teammates, you know, there's no room for dickheads, you, you respect the culture of the All Blacks, you respect the shirt, and you respect the game. And, you know, a lot of the ways how the New Zealand cricket team in the last couple of Cricket World Cups, in both times they've got to the final, and they've been, you know, in terms of their playing style, in terms of the way they go about things, it was a breath of fresh air. You know, England won the Cricket World Cup, but they learned everything, you know, all the positive bits out of it really can stem from looking at New Zealand saying, why can't we play like that? And it's interesting in terms of not this Cricket World Cup, but the previous one where they played the final against Australia. And New Zealand were known for being, you know, playing very open, a really interesting brand of cricket, but also respectful. And the Australian, especially Brad Haddon behind the stumps. And it was pretty clear that Australia, you know, within the first few moments of that game, that Australia were more than likely going to win. But it's the way how Haddon celebrated. He was gleeful at the fact that actually they were bullied. Not only were they winning, they were going to bully them out of this game. And they were going to give them send-offs. And it was all very unnecessary. 
In other words, you know, they didn't. They would have won that game regardless of the abuse that they were giving to the New Zealanders after they had got out. And at the time, I found it interesting, kind of looking at the coverage of, you know, how the Australian public dealt with it. Now the thing is, for the Australian public, they'd won a home World Cup against their, you know nearest rivals, you know, the, the tournament had had, you know, huge amounts of publicity, you know, there, you know, you had Steve Smith, you had David Warner, it was, you know, there was an interesting, you know, even had, there was an interesting mix, you had Michael Clark, who was, you know, career was, you know, close to ending, you'd had the tragedy of Bill Hughes, and as a result, they were quite happy yeah, they were so delighted because in the previous time they'd hosted the World Cup in 1992, they'd got knocked out very early in the tournament. You know, it, it, there was elements of the fairy tale about it, and as a result, the public as a whole were more than willing to ignore some of the, you know, less salubrious, the you know, awful parts of you know some of the behaviour in that tournament by their players, because they could use it the as the oh that's the Aussie way of you know playing in other words the sort of mongrel spirit in other words we you know on the field we will battle very hard but off the field we'll be really friendly and lovely and that kind of dichotomy and really as the professionalism has risen in women's football and as the you know, Europe has started to become more and more central to the sport both domestically and at national international level what you're getting is the gap is narrowing and as it narrows the US women's team are far more reliant on physicality and intimidation so if you look at it you had in the semi-final against England now one of the interesting bits about the like I said earlier that there always had to be a, a narrative behind a um, US women's team defeat. Now, effectively what you have is you had the Women's World Cup and then the next year you have the Olympic tournament. Now, the Olympic tournament is effectively a second World Cup. So really what you have is you have the Women's World Cup, you have the Olympics. Now, for the European nations, you have the... European Championship, which is now going to be a huge deal, and is ever more increasing. Whereby America doesn't really have that because, in terms of the teams that they would play at sort of confederation level, it's you know you're talking Jamaica, Mexico, Canada. Those teams aren't really outside of Canada aren't particularly able to give the United States a game. So in other words. It's not a tournament that really gets an awful lot of coverage because the US team are just expected to win and really they could stick out their B team, their under-21 team, and they would probably still win. So the Olympics you know, gets a much larger, much more important status than, let's say, if you're comparing it to the men's Olympic you know, tournament. And in the Rio Olympics, they lost in, effectively, the quarterfinals to Sweden on penalties. Now, what happened was the Swedish, you know, basically parked the bus, played for a draw, won the penalty shootout. And so Hope Solo, who is, you know, 
uh, I'd actually still probably say she's one of the top three or four goalkeepers in the world. And she had a, let's just say, you know, they've had she's had some problems in terms of um, during one training camp she got drunk with her husband who again has some well there's some allegations about him that are not particularly positive I'll leave it at that and they both got drunk and they stole a minibus from the US women's national team minibus and got caught drink driving and effectively you know she had been outspoken and at the end of the game what happened was is that she basically went on a little bit of a rant and said look they you know they haven't tried to play us fairly they've just parked the bus and you know she called them cowards now let's be quite clear is that in the men's game yeah people would say that and you might you'd get some criticism but in general it would just you know managers you know male managers have said you, know, you imagine Mourinho could have said that Wenger could have said that any number of you know you can imagine you know Pep saying something like that and it not causing much of a ripple outside of the well you're just saying that because you lost that kind of and a bit of you know probably Twitter abuse but what happened is is that they scapegoated her and it was fascinating because really at that point if they had been you know, and there was a couple other things, you know, in Hope Solo's you know, personal life that, you know, would give you cause that if, you know, in terms of, you know, being considered a role model and, you know, just general professional behaviour would give her cause to have been dropped. And what they did, and this is where this sort of toxic team culture comes into it, is they decided effectively to keep her for the World Cup and she had a fantastic tournament and really was the sort of backbone of of the team and helped you know in terms of keeping clean sheets which then allowed them to get to the final 152 finally the US were world champions and they were more than willing to keep her for the next summer for the Olympics because they wanted to get the gold medal and the second that she then stepped out of line relatively speaking they use that as a reason to drop her and they've never put her back since. But the difference being is is that because there was a three-year gap to the next World Cup, their idea was actually in the next three years, hopefully we'll find another goalkeeper. We can get her, you know, basically upskilled enough so that, you know, we don't need her. And that's where there's an element of cynicism to it. In other words, if you were that, you know, had that committed to team culture you wouldn't have picked her for the world cup the olympics but actually the second that she was not not quite as useful as she once was then uh, actually you can get get rid of her and to be honest it nearly nearly blew up on them because i mean Alyssa naya although she did you know end up saving that penalty from steph houghton she had a, a fairly nervy tournament she didn't wasn't commanding. You can see that she is fantastic shot stopper, and that you know there's the potentiality maybe two or three years that she could get up to a, a similar level of Hope Solo. But I would be hard pressed to say that if it was just purely down on ability, 
you would go with Hope Solo before Alyssa Nia. Which I think neatly leads on to how they, the women's national team sort of acted in, in this World Cup. Now, th their first game was against the Thailand national team. Now, I think one of the, the issues that you have with women's football is I think and this is especially really covers I suppose elements of Asia to an extent parts of Latin America and Africa is that in men's football with the World Cup is everyone wants to get there in you know, there's a desire amongst all the teams that rock up there at the start of qualifying is that they want to get there. Now some teams know that they have virtually no hope, they don't have the skills, the players, the managers, the infrastructure, but they're going to give it their best shot. Whereby in the women's game that's not necessarily the case. There are some countries that really don't want their women getting to the World Cup and as a result they don't put the resources in, they don't have the management, they don't play the friendlies, which can then, which has the knock-on effect that it's not so much that some teams are qualifying by default, it's just that they're not getting the same level of competition from qualifying that an equivalent men's team would do. In other words, to get to the World Cup, you have to play hard games in hard places against committed teams, whereby... If you would compare the Thai national team, it's there are some countries that bear you know not have a women's team in more in name than actual practicality. So, for, in other words, it's no surprise that the Thai women's team are qualified for the last two World Cups, while in comparison, the Thai national team, the men's side, have not got anywhere close to qualifying for a tournament. And it's not their fault, obviously, but as a, it what it means is is that they go into that tournament probably less well prepared in terms of competition than an equivalent men's team would. And when so when they played the U.S. team in their first game, now in the previous World Cup they'd lost, you know. First two games, yeah, they lost two games, you know, to quality European outfits, and they had won a game, and it was fantastic. It was a wonderful achievement. It was a wonderful tale to, you know, story in terms of, you know, just these players being so committed and battling against the odds. The fact that the, you know, there's a couple of, you know, wealthy, you know, Thai women who put time, effort, and money into funding. You know, it's just a, a wonderful story. The point is, is that outside of um, one of the players who uh, you know, had played out in, you know, was playing in college in America, most of them were you know, domestically based, so they didn't have a huge amount of experience playing in America. They didn't have any experience playing in Europe, and in t you know, they were a fairly small outfit in terms of stature. Anyway, going into this game is that the U.S. women's team. Their first team would win. Their B team, I think, their under twenty one team would win. You know, you the the it would you know you 
so their fourth team could probably win against Thailand. And I don't say that in any way, shape or form to decry the Thai team. It's just a statement of you know fact in terms of the difference in experience that the you know in terms of domestic football, any number of different you know, factors. And frankly the US team ran up the score. It was thirteen nothing at the end of it. It was three nil at half time. And so they've scored ten goals in forty five minutes. So that's effectively a goal every four four and a half minutes, give or take. <laughs> And what's happened is, is that that's then created a situation where the Thai women's team became a pub quiz question. What is the biggest defeat at a World Cup finals? Who is the team that has conceded the most goals in a World Cup campaign? And the Thai women's team don't deserve that. And they didn't deserve the US team over-celebrating every one of those goals. You know, there was, you know... The whole where the whole squad was all huddled. They sometimes they went to the manager. Sometimes they had pre-prepared celebrations, and it was all deeply unnecessary. And the point is, is that there was an element of disingenuousness to their responses after the game. It was oh well, we needed to win that for the goal difference. Now I am not being funny. That the U.S. women's team were going to top that group with nine points. Goal difference was the last possible excuse you to be fair they could have stopped at nine yeah once you get into double figures that is humiliating now i suppose i've been you know at park football and playing five aside over the years i've been involved where i've been on teams that have been hammered now the point is is that when you're in that position what it is is that everything the opposition do comes off when you're that far ahead of things you're not mentally tired and you're not physically tired you know and so the confidence goes through and when you give confidence to people who are professional footballers athletes who are taller stronger faster and play at a much higher level that means they can really hurt you and you there's nothing really much you can do about it because firstly you're exhausted and emotional, especially when it's hot weather, is that what can you do? If you, you know, press them, you leave space at the back, at which point they can just go through you and they can really hurt you. If you then decide, okay, we will drop back to the edge of our area and just, you know, effectively try and, you know, create a, a human barrier, you're giving them all of that space to come at you in the time and they can just then ping the ball into the top corner from 20 yards. It is that kind of level. And part of the, the thing they said, well, actually, we we're respecting them by not stopping. And it's, the point is, is that they, the Thai team had no way of competing. You know, in other words, they were able to be relatively competitive in the first half. But once you get tired and you don't have that base level of fitness, you, you aren't training in a professional environment week after week. In other words, as part of the way how they had qualified for the World Cup, they had played China and lost 6-0 to China. Now, China in 99 were a, you know, got to the final, but ever since then things have really slipped back and now China are kind of on the edge. They're, where once they were one of the top level, you know, sort of 
your A1 set of teams, they're now far closer to being a sort of B2, second division kind of team. They're, they've got some talent, but the they haven't kicked on. The infrastructure has got worse. And, you know, they're further away from competing, you know, and with each passing year, it's getting worse. And that's... And when you're in that position where they're not competitive, you know, against China, they're not competitive against... You know, Australia, they wouldn't be competitive against Japan. There's nothing, you know, you don't gain anything about having the school run up on you. It's it's not respect. And really what they would, they were using them as a punch bag to make a wider point of, we are the United States, we can hurt you. And the thing is, they were already favourites. I mean, in some ways, overwhelming favourites. Yes, there were some question marks about their defence, but they were expected to get to the minimum of the semi-final. You know, minimum final. They were expected to win. The press at home, the media, the fans were expecting them to win. The Federation were expecting them to win. There wasn't a need. And part of the reason why they were doing these big celebrations involving the manager was an outward sign of, we're all together, we're not fractured. Despite the fact that there was clear evidence, I mean, they they did come together, and it, you know, and that's, again, a, a, you have to give some element of credit to Jill Ellis, but also the fact that they had this lawsuit together, and, you know, that helps bring people together. But there were still elements of it. You, you had, obviously, Megan Rapinoe taking a huge amount of the sort of publicity... I mean, you had Carly Lloyd publicly saying that she felt that she should be playing more often. And and I, I got the very sort of definite sense that... And, I, and is that Jill Ellis wasn't able to set the time. She wasn't able to say, look, stop celebrating, you know, this is disrespectful. Is that she doesn't... Ha she didn't have that power to sit there and say no. I mean, this is someone who was reliant on the sort of core veterans to get them to the final and so as a result it it was more important for her to to have the public see them as a together dominant dangerous team than it would be to sit there and say actually maybe we should just ease back on these celebrations we should probably you know there's you know once you get to nine that's dominant that's once scoring every 10 minutes you've got the if you really needed the goal difference, you know, air quotes, which is rubbish because they were going to win all three games anyway, but you've made your point. And I think it's interesting, and this is really shows part of the developmental aspect of where women's football has gone, is that this women's national, the US team, were the first team that would have, most of them would have had their whole careers you know, in with professionalism. And as a result, whereby previous iterations, maybe sort of talking about 99, maybe even 2015 to, a, to an extent, they would have had experience when there wasn't a professional league in the United States. You know, the time before 1999, before that sort of turning point. And so they'd be much more able to empathise and understand where the Thai team were coming from, because they would have had some, I suppose, direct experience, whereby if you've just played at college level in a highly competitive you know, NCAA 
you know, tournaments. You've then been drafted into the NWSL, which is a professional league and one of the higher end professional leagues in you know, the world. You've then got onto the US Women's National Team, which again one of the most competitive places in you know sports as a whole, male or female. You wouldn't therefore understand what it's like to be effectively barely semi-pro, you know, playing in awful conditions in, you know, a domestic league where the standards are poor, the facilities are poor, and really having to, you know, battle against the odds just to get there in the first place, and having effectively the inability to compete at the top level. And then when you're coming up against a team that doesn't care about that. And the point is, is that... I don't think the Thai team deserved to become a pub quiz question. I don't think they deserved to have that story because that story went everywhere. That was on every single newspaper. That is the this sort of story that would go viral, you know, outside of it. You know, in other words, there was a huge amount of coverage. But had the US stopped at eight, that doesn't go all around the world in the way that thirteen did. I mean, if you compare it, let's say with. The biggest ever defeat in a World Cup in for the men's. It was El Salvador in nineteen eighty two. There's some similarities in terms of you know El Salvador being quite a poor country, and it was an incredible achievement for them to qualify for the eighty two World Cup, and they lost their first game ten one to Hungary. Now Hungary were a decent team, but you know they weren't the team of the fifties and sixties, which really were one of the best teams in the world. And what it was is that El Salvador went out and played a suicidally attacking brand of football. In other words, they just kept on going and going, and it didn't really... And in some ways, it wasn't so much that you know Hungary were deliberately running up the score. It's just that you know, El Salvador kept on going forward, kept on leaving space at the back, and you know, as a result, there's... You know, that game has a lot more elements of being a freak game, whereby the US was far more calculated. This wasn't a Thai team. It wasn't as if you know the Thai team were, were dirty and were kicking the US 10 feet in the air, and as a result, they decided that they were going to you know, you know really punish them. It wasn't in any way, shape, or form that kind of circumstance. It just was a team... Wanting, you know, getting the, the record for the sake of getting the record and not particularly caring. The point is, is that there's no guarantee that, you know, Thailand will get to the next World Cup. You know, all you need is for some of these countries which haven't, you know, that haven't invested anything in women's football, who don't want their teams to qualify, might decide, actually, if we put in several million pounds, if we just hire a couple of decent coaches... We could get to the stage where we can qualify, and then magically enough, we can say, "Oh, look! Look how, look how progressive we are." You know, our our girls are now in the you know World Cup finals, and so you know, it, there's an element of tenuousness to it. In other words, if the rest of Asia was and the Asian Confederation was to start taking women's football seriously, there is a you know, a really decent chance that Thailand wouldn't qualify because, you know, that's this pretty much the situation with the men's team. And the thing is, the advantage that the Thai team have over some of the more powerful 
it to team countries in terms of their sporting infrastructure isn't big enough that actually if you just put a couple of million pounds into it if you were to hire a couple of decent coaches the advantage Thailand has in terms of being an early an early entrant into you know women's football in the 70s which is something fantastic something there's a huge amount of credit for it's not high enough they could end up being shut out and what what a terrible thing to have one of your last you know, let's say one of your last att- you know, attempts at getting into the World Cup overshadowed by that. How awful it is for those players who will now forever, instead of having the you know, sense of the achievement of getting to a World Cup, will be forever known that, oh, you were part of the 13-0 squad. And it's, it's not fully the US national team's fault. It's just unnecessary. And you know, it's unnecessary to celebrate the goals in such an in-your-face way. It is a lack of respect. Much in the same way that you know, Alex Morgan's celebration in the, the semi-final against England, where she was mim- mimicking drinking a cup of tea. Now, it's one of those classic ones where the reasoning behind it after the game, she said she was, I think, listening to some kind of podcast or television show, and that they were kind of mimicking that. But it's one of those things that... That maybe that was the reasoning behind it, but there's also an element of if you're playing England in a World Cup semi final and you score and you mimic drinking a cup of tea, people are going to think that you know you're doing that you know effectively to wind up the oppo to disrespect them, whether that's deliberate or not, but you get the feeling that with this team actually it probably was it's a way of intimidation that there was a very physical game, there was elbows being thrown. There were some tackles coming in. I mean, even after the game, you had a situation where Lindsay Horan, who was the midfielder for the you know, US team, and she was jumping on the back of the goalkeeper, knocking into you know the England captain Steph Houghton as she's giving an interview. Now Steph Houghton has just missed you know a five minutes to go, missed a penalty to take the game to extra time. As a devastating moment for anyone, especially the captain, you feel like you've let your country down. You feel like you've you know, you let the team down, you know, it's a personal disappointment. And this is someone who's had probably, you know, just unimaginable year in the sense that her husband, who's a professional footballer playing for Tramia in the lower divisions, has now been diagnosed with a you know, horrible condition and has had to retire and just to have had the mental strength to have, you know, carried on playing to have then gone to the World Cup, to have led, you know, to have had the horrible, of that injury where she was taken out in the last minute by a Cameroon player, deliberately trying to hurt her, and then to have missed this penalty, when she isn't, she wasn't supposed to be taking a penalty at the start of the tournament, but the original penalty taken, you know, basically hit her way out by missing a couple, and to have then still taken on the responsibility, and at the end to have this young, inexperienced girl celebrating in her face it it's unnecessary but the point is is that you know people like you know Megan Rapinoe didn't set the tone wasn't sitting there saying well actually you know she's made a really horrible mistake you know like one of the questions they asked you know Megan Rapinoe about you know what what do you think about this celebration in terms of Alex Morgan and her response was wow wow and it's just 
was it necessary? And I know that it's a colliery of this you know, culture of needing to win and being under that kind of pressure. And that the knowledge that the US advantage in terms of you know, the league, in terms of the playing pool, it is rapidly shrinking. And that in the next few years, it's more than likely that you know, the European leagues with the Champions League at domestic level will start to overtake you know, the NWSL. And that eventually the days of the United States winning, you know, day in, day out, you know, winning nine out of ten games isn't going to be forever. But all you have to do is you have to look to what happens when a culture win now, where there is no checks and balances, where it's not the where the coach doesn't have that level of political economy to be able to say that's enough because the coach has to win to keep the job and that's really what happened with Australia where the board were saying to you know David Warner get in the face of the players you know the oppo because we need to win because winning is what you know gets people into the door gets you know the television contracts and then you end up with sandpaper game in other words there's a decent chance you know if you take it and and part of the thing is is that the fans and media have contributed. They haven't held people to account. They've been more than happy to focus on all the wonderful things. And it is. The women's national team, in terms of the battle for equality, in terms of some of the things that Megan Rapinoe you know, has stood for, I agree with her entirely. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with some of the elements that are you know, sort of self-aggrandizing. It did feel at times like it was Megan Rapinoe and the US women's national team, and that, you know, she was just out front. And yes, she was the player of the tournament. Yes, she was a, a huge part of why they got to the final and why they won. But at the same point is that she didn't play in the semi-final. She was just one member out of a 23-person squad. And I suppose my argument would be is that Megan Rapinoe is a walking legend in terms of, you know, someone who is you know, a fantastic footballer, someone who is, you know, a gay icon, in terms of you know, being a role model. But at the same time, I think there is a difference between being a legend and an icon, and some of the coverage that sh she was getting throughout the tournament was far more of a sense of guilt, really, with sort of mainstream media, with sort of fans of having ignored women's football and women's footballers as a whole. And she was kind of an easy narrative in that she is has an inspiring backstory. She is outspoken. She was such a fantastic player playing for you know, the world champions and the US, which is a huge media market. And it's a way how domestic and foreign fans could alike could both, you know, essentially support you know her standpoint you know she's media friendly accessible you know she is you know well educated and and has a sort of personality a media profile that was in some ways unthreatening in other words i think it's interesting if you look at um abby wombach who is a legend for the u.s women's national team who retired at the end of the 
last World Cup, having finally won the World Cup, having now then won absolutely everything you could possibly win, having scored you know, hundreds of goals. And she was gay, and she was an absolute... Again, another fantastic, you know, sort of role model, you know, for anybody. And yet I think her media profile was far more uh, spiky, and I think as a result, she never got quite the same level of, I suppose, media coverage than Rapinho did. And whether that's because, you know, the world has moved on in the last sort of three or four years in terms of gay rights, yeah, to an extent, and that women's football's getting more coverage, but it definitely, I get the feeling that uh, Rapinho was far more quotable and was far more palatable to a, a general kind of audience than one batch was to an extent. And I think there's also an element of echo chamber. In other words, all of the points that she was making at the World Cup, I fully agree with, but it's also an audience that was receptive to it. In other words, sitting there at the Women's World Cup and criticising FIFA and Donald Trump is not particularly controversial. And to me, icons are people that do controversial things and that really make us think and make... And that at the time, you don't maybe get the same credit for that then the history books get sort of rewritten at the end, much in the same way that Muhammad Ali, when you know, he was stripped of the heavyweight title and was you know, ostracised for refusing to be drafted because of his views on Vietnam at the time, was massively unpopular, and yet, with the arc of history, he was proven to be correct, and then, you know, ascended to iconhood. Much in the same way that, you know, a lot of the coverage when Colin Kaepernick originally you know, started his protest was, you know, critical, you know, stick to sports, that kind of argument, and... Now that we, you know, several years on with the Trump presidency and all of the negativity that has been foisted on him and having lost his career undeservedly, to be effectively blackballed, to have spent the last three years not being able to do your job, despite being more than qualified to do it. You then look at someone like you know Serena Williams when you know, she was racially abused at Indian Wells. Now Indian Wells is probably one of the sort of top ten, fifteen tournaments in the world. It's kind of one of those tournaments that's just below the kind of standard of the majors, you know, the Grand Slam tournaments. And for you know over ten years, she boycotted the tournament because they refused to apologize. And as a result, she would have lost money, you know, there was the potential rankings points, any number of things, until eventually they apologised, until, you know, the changes that were made, so that, and that's the kind of sacrifices that aren't, you know, was a lot of the stuff that, you know, Serena Williams, you know, during her career, she took a huge amount of, you know, negative press coverage, you know, bias coverage, and yet, it's only really the last few years of her career and then you know becoming a mother that the needle has started to move and that people now really see her in many ways as being an icon so while i give you know megan rapinho huge credit for you know being one of the the first you know white athletes to you know 
join the Kaepernick protest in terms of you know getting on one knee for the U.S. national anthem is that there was an there was basically a discussion with the U.S. Federation and eventually she decided they put a new policy in and she she dropped her protest because had she continued doing the protest she would have been dropped and effectively lost her contract and wouldn't have been selected for the US Women's National Team wouldn't have played at the World Cup and she maintained the protest to an extent but it's just not singing the US Anthem which is not, unless you know about it you just think, oh well she doesn't sing the Anthem some people do, some people don't and that's not, you wouldn't know unless you'd read it that she was actually protesting the point is, is that Kaepernick has done this huge thing and has changed. You know, there's been arguments and debates, but he has lost his career and she hasn't. You know, in other words, you know, the whole issue with you know not going to the White House. Well, that was something that the Golden State did at first. You know, the criticizing Donald Trump. LeBron did it first. There's an element of you know, people, you know, black people protesting, and athletes, both you know, men and women. And you know, getting you know blowback and criticism, and really, and this is not necessarily a, a, a flat out criticism of Megan Rapinoe. I'm not you know circling her out for overt criticism, but it's it's a lot easier when you're in a circumstance where you know you're playing for a, a national team that is successful and that America is very proud of in a football culture which tends to be younger, more liberal than you know America as a whole. And there's an element that basically <laughs> that canonizing you know Rapinio as a hero, which she undoubtedly is, that the audience were always going to be much more receptive to you know her protest then let's say you know Kaepernick or yeah an African American male athlete you know, my argument would be that it's not a competition it's not me sitting there ranking Kaepernick as a, a martyr and that you know Rapinoe is less of a martyr uh, I think it's more to do with the lines of both have done fantastic things and both are heroes and role models but I think with to make Rapinoe an icon I think at some point there has to be an element where she shows leadership on you know in terms of the way how the, the women's team are the US team are perceived so instead of having these you know overtly physical intimidatory bullying you know elements of arrogance that well you need to you know, you need to do better. Just because the fans and media are so enraptured with, you know, be you know, the idea of you know, sort of feeling very woke and very virtuous and virtue signalling by, you know, jumping on this sort of bandwagon of you know, the US team winning and being successful and being, you know, battling for equality in in the sense that, you know, women's football has always been a forum for you know 
female empowerment and for you know gay rights it, that's always been there even from you know let's say the the famous story when um, England played France and won the first women's ever sort of internationals the captains you know kissed on the you know center circle for the game without seemingly there being any kind of huge outrage in other words there is you know gay athletes in football has you know in the women's game it is fairly commonplace in you know, and you were building off of you know what, what Billie Jean King, what Martina Navratilova did with with tennis. It's all you know, and you know Abby Wambach, and you know, building off of off of that. But really, what I would be looking for from you know Megan Rapinoe would be to say, well, why, if you look at the women's national team historically and the as a whole it's not particularly representative in other words you know you have crystal dunn who is african-american you have brianna scurry who's african-american like a handful of other players but it's generally trends to be a, a white team and what i would say about that is is a similar thing sort of happened with with our country with you know sort of with the last couple of world cups is that there was very much a sense of our girls because for it was easy to easy to get behind them because they yeah you know, they look like your you know your daughters your cousins your sisters it it was they were easily marketable their backstories were easy to get behind they were articulate but at the same time the problem is is that and this is true in America more than the English national team is that there are reasons behind that in terms of the way how women's football is structured in ter- because you need you know in ter- you have you get to you go to college the college system is where you, the top level in being under you know sort of 21 that's where you get your chops and that's where you then go to get into the NWSL, and that's where you could then lead to the the national team. That's the pathway, and playing, you know, at high school level, playing on the, playing on the exhibition stage, which is, by exhibition, what I mean is is that you have like touring teams. So in other words, to, because you don't really have academies in the way they do in, in Europe what you would do is you'd go on to a travelling team and you would play you know high end you know sort of amateur football so when you're sort of 13 14 15 or you know if you go to a high school which had a particularly good women's team which would then lead you to going getting off college scholarships which then leads you into like I said the NWSL which then gets you into the, the national team. That's the pathway, which then means that really you need a certain you know, grade point average, you need the money to travel, you need the, the kit and all the rest of it, which automatically means that you don't get as many you know rags to riches stories when you, you deal with the US women's national team, whereby with the English team, you did have, you know, there was you know a couple of the players, you know, one of them had been homeless for a while there had been some people that had you know worked you know, dead-end jobs didn't have huge amounts of money come from broken homes 
that isn't there into the US women's national team. As a result, the US women's national team isn't representative and it's structural. And yet, I, I mean, maybe she has criticised it, but I haven't seen any point that, that she's looked inward and to say that actually, you know, the current system, while it is, you know, the US are dominant at you know, international level, it's still, you know, it's an example of privilege in terms of if you have to, you know, if you're in the right place, if you if your profile fits, you're more likely. In other words, you get two players at exactly the same level of talent, but one's in a middle class, you know, house in California and one is in the projects in a urban city. It's much more likely that the person living out in the California suburbs is going to go to the top. Because that those avenues aren't as open. In other words, if your high school doesn't have the money to run a proper, you know, women, you know, girls soccer team, then you don't have the ability to get, you know, you don't have the money to, to do the travel teams. You therefore don't get to get go to a good college where the programs, the upper end college programs, which then means you can't really get into WSL, NWSL, which means you don't get to the national team. It's that kind of principle. And really, if we're going to give iconhood, then that's where we need to go. In other words, criticising, you know, talking to the 52% who and to foreign audiences who are generally tend to be, you know, especially when you talk about women's football, who tend to be more feminist, tend to be more receptive to, you know, gay rights. Criticising Donald Trump after everybody else has done it, after teams have, you know, refused to go to the White House, isn't particularly controversial. When the fans booed Gianni Infantino, when he was giving the World Cup and the Best Player Tournament you know, to Megan Rapinoe, saying, well, you know, having a go at FIFA, well, that's not difficult. I mean, if you had to do a public opinion poll, who ranks higher in the public's estimation, Donald Trump or FIFA, they're both right at the bottom. And really, as, as it led to the Australian national team, eventually, one, the, the US aren't going to be dominant forever. And with this toxic culture, where does that lead? In other words, the last time they had a shock in terms of not getting a medal at the Rio Olympics, they threw they threw Hope Solo overboard. You know, the the players nearly got rid of Jill Ellis. You know, what? You know, who's going to be? You know, is there going to be an incident? Is there going to be an equivalency of Sandpaper Gate? You know, where is where is the moment? That the tide is going to shift when you know the public and the media are going to start looking at the women's national team in a more critical you know critical light is it going to be a defeat is there going to be someone get sent off is there going to be an elbow where where will someone say no you know i think it would be a personal tragedy if you end up in a situation where for all of the Good and all of the fantastic football that the United States can play when they're at their best, and for all of the positivity and the, in terms of the battle for equality, you know, not having to play on artificial surfaces, you know, taking the fight to FIFA, forcing them to be more proactive, forcing the U.S. Soccer Federation to be more proactive in building the women's game. That's fantastic. But right now, I'd have to say that 
in many ways the culture of the women's national team is toxic they are in some way shape or form you know a a team of trumpian values it is very much you know an element bullying an element of intimidation uh, america first a lack of empathy a, a lack of respect mm-hmm. with you know backstabbing with cliques with winning being the only thing that matters that covers up all manner of you know misbehavior and and outright you know shitheadery of crassness <laughs> the US women's national team are world champions and now they need a world champion culture to match that thank you for listening